Welcome to the Business of Primary Care podcast, where we discuss the latest news, trends, and practices in primary care. Our community is full of healthcare's best. From physicians to CEOs, you will hear from brilliant minds on topics ranging from value-based care to the latest in healthcare tech. Welcome back to the Business of Primary Care podcast. During our last episode, we talked with Dr. John Hart, the medical director of CareSource. With him, we took a look at a practical guide to implementing a value-based care model. It was a great conversation. And this week, we welcome Dr. Eric Bricker to get his insights on referrals within primary care. He joins our host, Katila Farley, for today's discussion. Katila is a registered nurse and an experienced healthcare executive. Her professional experience includes 18 plus years in healthcare, and she currently serves as the chief customer officer at Affirm Health. Dr. Bricker currently works as a medical director at Simple Pay Health and has a fascinating background as a consultant and entrepreneur. To kick off the interview, Dr. Bricker shares how he got into healthcare and what led him to where he is today. Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you to all the listeners. So my name is Eric Bricker and I'm an internist and I went to medical school at the University of Illinois and then did my uh, medicine residency at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And I've got a, a little bit of a different background in that before I went to medical school, I actually was a hospital finance consultant. So I actually worked in the billing business office of uh, major medical centers with all the the bills and um, coding. And I learned a ton. And this was in the 90s. And, you know, healthcare was a quote unquote mess back then. And so I'm like, okay, well, let me kind of learn about that, that, that mess before I go to medical school. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'd like to, you know, maybe have a little bit of a, um, of a, you know, different medical career where maybe I, I work in policy, or maybe I could do something to try to like help fix this uh, administrative billing mess that I was seeing. And so um, actually, ended up starting a, a business while I was in residency with some of my former healthcare consulting colleagues. That was what's called a healthcare navigation business, where we would essentially do all the sort of the non-clinical uh, paperwork for patients that doctors like hate doing and patients, you know, hate doing. And so we would essentially take that off their plate, whether it was like finding referrals or scheduling appointments or dealing with prior authorizations. And um, I, I guess, ironically, we were actually hired by a person's employer. So they would get our service and the company was called Compass Professional Health Services and they would get our service through their job, through their benefits, right? So you get like your medical and your dental and your vision and then you would get your Compass Healthcare Navigation Service to help you with that. And the reason for that was this was in the sort of the mid 2000s when these HSA um, plans, high deductible plans started coming out. And so all the employers were like, I have no idea how my health insurance works now. My copay has gone away. And all of a sudden I have this $2,000 deductible. And I'm like, I have no clue what to do with that. And we actually had all the prices too. So we could actually give people prices in advance so that they could know. Um, so anyway, so, so companies would put us in uh, in conjunction with that HSA plan so that the employees actually had some sort of expert guidance along with that. And then I worked with so many um, employers and HR folks, better broker benefit consultants that actually started making these A Healthcare Z uh, finance videos on YouTube and LinkedIn just to continue to educate the folks that are actually paying for this care to kind of educate them kind of on how the healthcare system works because it's so convoluted, it's difficult to understand. Anyway, that's a mouthful, probably more than you wanted to know, but that's a little bit about me. I love it. That's fantastic. And so many of us in the world of medicine do not have the background of the finances. 
and the coding. I talk to people and I'll ask, when you were in med school, how much time did you did they put into billing or coding? And most of the time it's glazed eyes and they're like, no, that's that's not a focus for us in med school. So what an incredible background you have. Well, I just I just I lucked out. Happened to be in the right place at the right time. <laughs> that's great. So um to today, with all of that experience, what an incredible experience. I can't wait to hear about how you take all that knowledge and use it in the world of medicine and especially having practiced it in the way that you have. I'd love to start to talk to you about what trends in healthcare, especially primary care, has your attention. So let's just kind of start there. I would say, in my opinion, the biggest trend in uh, primary care is actually um, attempting to move away from fee-for-service and taking on risk, whether you want to call that capitation or value-based care or what what have you. There's a gazillion buzzwords out there. And this is, in my opinion, it's probably happening the most for the Medicare Advantage population. Those tend to be the groups where the uh, the insurance carrier, Blue Cross United, Cigna, Aetna, Humana, are sort of more interested in entering into sort of risk-based uh, contracts with primary care physicians. I think that's great. I think that's the right right way to go. I um, I think that fee for service is a horrible way to pay for primary care. So to the extent that we can move away from that, I think that's a positive thing. That's fantastic. And Mike, I'm curious too. You mentioned some payers. Why do you think others seem to be also looking at this model? So we're hearing about other people in the market. You know, we're hearing Amazon, we're hearing Apple, we're hearing Walmart, we're hearing Dollar General. We're hearing. What are your thoughts on that? And I also just this morning I saw an article come out about how Disney is moving into that that same perspective. Any thoughts there on why others seem to be shifting to this type of model? Well, as a business, all these companies are businesses with shareholders and fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to make as much money as humanly possible. And there is gobs of money in Medicare Advantage. So a Medicare Advantage uh, enrollee beneficiary, like the government is, you know, CMS, you know, Medicare, whatever you want to call it, it's given, you know, it varies. Obviously, there's risk adjustment. It depends upon if you're a healthy 65-year-old or if you've got a whole bunch of comorbidities, but it's about $18,000 per person per year. And so that's where these primary care physicians, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with ChenMed, which does all they do is 100% capitated risk-based contracting. Like the primary care physicians, patient panels are only like four to 500 patients, right? Your typical primary care physician has a patient panel of like, like 3,000, 4,000, sometimes 5,000 patients. And that's impossible, right? You cannot provide adequate primary care with a patient panel of you know 4,000 patients. And ChenMed's like, yeah, you're right. You can't. So we're going to make it like 400 patients. But if you're bringing in $18,000 per person, then it gives you more than enough of a revenue stream, a recurring revenue stream for those 400 folks to actually provide phenomenal primary care for them and to all the other social determinants of health. They have food pantries in their clinics. They have a ChenMed minivan that comes and picks you up from your house so you don't have to drive to the clinic, right? So like, just access, just like getting in the door is a huge issue that these primary care physicians are able to do when they have a when they have that sort of risk-based contract. Absolutely. And that's a great example. So they're using a lower panel of patients that they're focusing in on. My thoughts then are, do we have enough of those type of businesses for all of our seniors, right? So if we're if we're keeping a lower panel, like you mentioned, most other primary care pr- providers have thousands on their panel. So what happens with the gap? 
Yeah. And so that's where I'm a firm believer in you absolutely have to use physicians, assistants and nurse practitioners. And I think they're phenomenal. And, you know, a good friend of mine from medical school is, is now the chief medical officer of the, of the academic medical center, uh, where we trained and he used to be the head of their outpatient clinics and their outpatient clinics use PAs and NPs, uh, a lot. And he says it works out great. Listen, we're not going to dramatically increase the number of residency positions for family practice and peds and internal medicine in this country. Like, it's not going to happen. So can a well-trained, well-supervised uh, nurse practitioner or physician's assistant provide an incredibly important role in providing primary care? Uh, absolutely. I think it's a necessity. The model that is used by um, the Intermountain Healthcare System and their uh, primary care clinics is a great approach, right? So I don't have any unique ideas. Like to a certain extent, like we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like there have been wheels invented in America and we just kind of need to find those sort of areas of excellence and just kind of expand them. And so there, you know, the, Dr. Brent James, who I believe is a family, family practice physician. He was kind of the head quality guy out there. He's retired now, but they really, what they, they sort of coined what they refer to as the third generation patient-centered medical home, where the first generation included uh, disease management, you know, oftentimes done by, you know, nurses, um, and, you know, sort of longitudinally helping people outside of the clinic. And then two was adding in counselors because there was a lot of behavioral health, mental health issues related to, especially around uh, mood disorders like depression and anxiety that, um, you know, PTSD, et cetera, which were really hampering uh, people's ability to be healthy. And then the third piece that that is the third generation patient-centered medical home is they actually added healthcare navigation delivered by the primary care clinics. And I will tell you, as somebody that founded a healthcare navigation company, that's the best way to do it is to do it through the primary care clinics. Like we tried our best to do it through the employer and we had to do that because the employees were like spread out across America, right? So there was no primary care practice in like Florida and Alaska, right? It was like people were all over the place. So we had to do it through their job. Like that was the, that was the central commonality for all these people. So anyways, to, so to specifically answer your questions, there are there were, you know, counselors, you know, there were masters in social work with a concentration of counseling, the obviously the med techs and a lot of, like the navigation people, we trained them all ourselves. Like, and so many of the tasks that whether it be an APP or a physician that they're doing, so many of those tasks can be performed by these other folks as well. You know, Dr. Atul Gawande says it's, it's like a pit crew. You really need this team, this quote unquote team based approach to care. So you don't have to like quadruple the number of doctors in America or primary care physicians. Like you don't need to do that. There's other ways to do it. Anyone who has been to the doctor or helped an elderly relative get the healthcare they need knows intimately the nuances and frustrations that come with sorting out the details, getting the appointments and the billing taken care of. Additionally, we've heard and seen the effects and costs that come with redundant testing, unnecessary emergency visits, and medication mishaps. So in comes a concept that Dr. Berker has mentioned throughout the podcast, a health navigator. Quite simply, it's defined as the job of helping someone find and obtain the medical and social services that they need, and in some health systems, to deal with health insurance that helps pay for it. There was a study conducted in 2017 to see the influence of non-medical staff navigators. They take a look at cost savings and resource use, specifically with patients who are older adults with cancer. 
The findings were fascinating. They used regression analysis to compare changes in quarterly Medicare costs and healthcare use between patients navigated versus non-navigated patients. So compared with matched non-navigated patients, outcomes declined more per quarter for navigated patients, including costs by $781 per patient for an estimated $19 million in total per year across the network saved. Navigated patients also lowered emergency department visits by 6%, hospitalizations by 7.9%, and intensive care unit admissions by 10.6%. Interestingly, it seems as though having someone help consumers navigate their care could save healthcare large sums of money, especially those in a risk-based model. And according to this study, they don't even have to be a healthcare professional. And additionally, we know that providing these services helps patients receive quality care without quite as much stress. So now let's dive back into our conversation on referrals. How should primary care providers approach it from fee-for-service and value-based care? It's a great question because not all referrals are, um, it's not homogeneous. It's a very heterogeneous population. And so actually the, sort of the referrals was sort of uh, bread and butter of what we did at our navigation uh, company, Compass. And so interestingly, it really stratifies or prioritizes by certain specialties and the two most common specialties that people needed when they were seeing a primary care physician was eat was two. It was ortho and OBGYN. Those were the big two. And for various reasons, right? So a lot of times for the OBGYN, it was because they had recently moved and they were new to the area or their OBGYN retired or some OBGYNs are like, oh, I'm just going to do the guy and I'm not going to deliver babies anymore because I don't want to get up in the middle of the night because most babies are delivered in the middle of the night. So like, yeah, my OBGYN won't deliver babies anymore. You know, so um, so that would be that would be a common one. And then for for ortho, because a lot of, you know, not a lot of times, but sometimes people will end up starting with their primary care physician for musculoskeletal issues. And like primary care physicians are like, they will admit themselves that that's probably their weakest area of healthcare or medicine is musculoskeletal issues. And so like a lot of stuff, musculoskeletal related, they're kind of like immediately like, oh, you just need to see the orthopedist. And interestingly, those were, each of those were about um, 10% of the entire referral universe, right? So you had 20% of all referrals worked out both of those specialties and then literally every other specialty was about equal, less than that. So whether it was dermatology or cardiology or gastroenterology or ENT, like there's literally, um, there's, oh, I, cause I've done a, I've done a, a lecture video about this. Like there's over 60 different ologists, right? There's a, a gazillion different ologists, right? Wow. So they each get, they each get about one and a half percent. Right. So, so all those other ologists. So anyway, my point around referral management is that you is don't try to boil the ocean. Okay. It's actually, you want to think about, okay, well, what's kind of your methodology that you would want to use around OB and ortho. And that's where, you know, one of the, and that's where, again, I don't have any quote unquote original ideas. I just, I just look to see what's been successful in the past. And so, or existing today in America and really for ortho to the extent that you can find an orthopedic practice or group that frankly mirror, mirrors the Mayo Clinic approach. And what is the Mayo Clinic approach? It is one, it's patient at the center so that they're not pinging, ping ponging all over the place. And then two, it's physicians on salary. So there are absolutely 
financial incentives for doctors in all specialties, especially when they have co-ownership in ambulatory surgery centers, mm-hmm. where they're not only getting their professional fee, but they're also getting a cut of the facility fee. And of course, no doctor's going to say, oh, well, you know, of course I'm doing what's best for the patient. I'm not motivated by the money. And I would argue that a lot of these biases are even subconscious. So they kind of even subconsciously might choose to do something without, you know, thinking they're doing the best thing for the patient. But because of that financial incentive through fee-for-service and the co-ownership of the ambulatory surgery center, it's skewing their clinical judgment, which is why Dr. W.W. Mayo in the late 1800s, when he started the Mayo Clinic, said, all of our doctors are going to be on salary. That as an organization, because he saw that in the 1800s, he's like, oh yeah, there's tons of doctors doing stuff to try to make money. And they're not doing it in the best interest of the patient. So if we put them on salary, then you separate the pay from the clinical decision. And oh, by the way, they do the same thing at the Cleveland Clinic as well. So I don't think it's a coincidence that those are two of the highest reputable medical centers in the world. And they have both chosen to put their physicians on salary. So how do you do that if you're a primary care physician? Probably your closest local proxy for that is the academic uh, medical center is the university hospital system. So there, typically their faculty are on salary. And yeah, there might be some RVU stuff in there, but it's probably the closest approximation to being able to do a referral to a specialist who's paid a salary. Um, so that that's probably a number one. Then the next thing, so so not all primary care physicians, depending upon, so so what what does that mean? That means setting expectations with your patients around where they're going to have to travel to. And so we'd be like, look, this is not like going out for fast food. Like, like it's not going to be quote unquote convenient. That academic medical center might be like a 45 minute drive to a downtown area that you're unfamiliar with. Okay. But this is important. And if it means you need to go there and pay for parking and go to a place that's unfamiliar to you, like, As your primary care doctor, I'm telling you, this is important for you to do this. I get that it's not easy. I get that it's an inconvenience, but I don't want to send you to the orthopedist who's literally three doors down from me. And I want to send you to this academic medical center for this reason. So I would say that a lot of healthcare is like like the restaurant business where the most important thing is location, location, and location. And so in your referrals, as a primary care physician, you need to get over that and you need to set expectations with your patients to also get over that as well. So good. I just wanted to let that sink in just for a minute. One additional question I have from it is just, we have all types of listeners. Could you tell us what is the difference in an ambulatory surgical center? You maybe define that a little bit. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So believe it or not, the majority of surgeries that are done today are outpatient, even at the hospital. People come in and they go home the same day. So the word ambulatory comes from like the word ambulance, which basically means to walk, to ambulate, right? And so the quote unquote theory with an ambulatory surgery center is that you would walk into the surgery center and then you would have your surgery done and then you would walk out. Of course, in practice, you don't actually walk out. You're in a wheelchair and they kind of dump you in the back of a car and your family member takes you home and you kind of recuperate on the couch or whatever because you're groggy from the anesthesia. But they are sometimes they're on the campus of the major medical center of the hospital. Sometimes they're completely separate. They're, you know, down the street or multiple miles away and they don't have um, they don't have inpatient beds. You don't stay there overnight and they still have full surgical suites and they have the anesthesiologist there. 
Now, those ambulatory surgery centers, they typically have different structures of ownership. Sometimes those ambulatory surgery centers themselves are actually owned by the hospital and they bill through the hospital. And that's important because a hospital, so one, in terms of like your own like out-of-pocket cost as a patient, um, or if you're a primary care physician who's taking risk, all the money is in the facility charge. So it's not in the professional fee. It's not in paying the surgeon. It's not in paying the anesthesiologist. All the money is in the facility fee. And the facility fee through a hospital system is much higher. So for example, like an arthroscopic knee surgery might be upwards of twenty-five dollars or $30,000 if it's a hospital. Whereas if it's an, 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 a quote-unquote independent ambulatory surgery center, it might only be $4,500. Okay, so as the allowed amount, not bill charges, as the allowed amount. So that being said, just because it's an ambulatory surgery center, really the diligence on the part of the primary care physician of the patient is, is that, okay, is it owned by a hospital system or is it independent? Because that'll give you a good proxy of whether or not it is going to be affordable for you. Because a lot of people have a $2,000 deductible, 20% coinsurance to an, to an $8,000 out-of-pocket max. So literally, if you get that at the hospital, you're going to hit your eight grand out of pocket max. Whereas if you went to the ambulatory surgery center, you might only be paying $2,200. Okay, so that's a huge deal. So that's number one. And then number two is that ambulatory surgery center, whether it's independent or if it's owned by the hospital, will have potentially co-ownership relationships with the surgeons that actually practice there. So oftentimes it's a 51% hospital system, 49% doctor ownership, so that when the ambulatory surgery center has profit at the end of the year, that 49% of that profit is, is given to the doctors and 51% is given to the hospital. And so there, the oftentimes the surgeons that practice at that ambulatory surgery center, that profit from the ambulatory surgery center is more than they make from their professional fees. They're actually making more off the facility fee from doing the procedure than their actual professional fee for billing the insurance. Also, is that still sometimes more affordable than inpatient facility fees? Yeah, don't even get me right. So like if you're going for an inpatient surgery, then, you know, oftentimes you're talking in excess of 40 grand. Like it's not like it. So so some surgeries have to be inpatient, right? So like, let's say a, a, a school, there's, there's more and more adult scoliosis surgeries. Like the allowed amount for an adult scoliosis surgery is upwards of a quarter of a million dollars. The first U.S. Surgery Center opened in 1970, and today there are over 5,900 Medicare-certified ambulatory surgery centers in the United States, performing 22.5 million surgical procedures annually. We've seen tremendous growth in the last 40 years. Almost 75% of all surgeries today are performed on an outpatient basis. In 1980, only 15% were performed on an outpatient basis. And as it stands, slightly more than half of all outpatient surgeries are done in an ambulatory surgery center. Additionally, studies show that surgery centers save the Medicare system over $4.2 billion each year. But even more so than that, the savings for your patient are also significant. Blue Cross Blue Shield reported an average savings of $320 in out-of-patient costs for patients undergoing a luminectomy in the outpatient setting compared to inpatient. Several other outpatient procedures have been shown to result in lower out-of-pocket costs to patients, including the incredibly common cataract surgery, which at an ambulatory surgery center costs the patient only $193, as compared to a hospital, which would be 490 
In short, ambulatory surgery centers have great cost savings across the board. So let's dive back in, picking up with this question for Dr. Berger. What changes do you anticipate in the next few years when it comes to referrals? The most common type of, uh, of insurance coverage that people have is the, is the PPO plan so that if the primary care physician makes a referral to, let's say, a cardiologist, they don't need, uh, you know, a pre-cert or prior authorization to just, they don't need a quote unquote referral through the insurance company to see the cardiologist. That's the old gatekeeper HMO model. Most, you know, so yeah, Kaiser, some places still have that, but for most people, they're on a PPO plan. And, but within that PPO plan, if that specialist wants to do any tests or procedures, so all advanced imaging, MRIs and CT scans, all cardiac stress tests, you go to a pulmonologist for a potential obstructive sleep apnea, they want to do a sleep study, Those, all of those require prior authorization. So just know that there is a high likelihood that if you refer your patient to a a uh, specialist for that there's a high likelihood that specialist is going to do, want to do some sort of procedure or testing or what have you and that procedure or testing it's highly likely that is going to require hot prior authorization and it is also highly likely that that process will get screwed up and the specialist will go ahead and do the tested procedure anyway and the insurance will deny it so like if you, as a primary care physician, were actually setting appropriate expectations with your patient, you would say to them, look, I need to refer you to cardiology, and they're probably going to do like an echocardiogram or a stress test or maybe a Holter monitor, and there's a high likelihood that the insurance is going to uh, require prior authorization, and frankly, it's probably not going to happen, and so the cardiologist is going to, because whenever insurance doesn't pay the everybody signs a piece of paper that says you, the patient are ultimately responsible for the bill. Like we'll bill your insurance, but you, the patient are ultimately responsible and all the billing systems have automatic uh, patient billers so that when they get a denial from the insurance company and non-payment, they automatically bill the patient. So as a primary care physician, like you need to tell your patient, like, look, it's probably going to get denied and you're going to get a bill. And frankly, you're going to have to figure it out unless you as a primary care group actually had healthcare navigation built in, which again, if you have, uh, you know, risk-based capitated payments, like you would want to do that for your patients, right? And you would have the income from the risk-based contract to actually do it, to hire people to do it. In a, in a, in a primary care fee-for-service world, you're basically, you don't have time or bandwidth. So you basically just need to say to your patient, good luck. You're going to get a bill. And oh, by the way, a nuclear stress test can cost eight grand. So you go and you get your nuclear stress test and it gets denied. The patient's going to get a bill for eight grand. I mean, that's like a used car. So powerful. And what I'm hearing is the trajectory of true partnerships and true contracting through value-based care initiatives is really the right way to go. It's giving providers the ability to do more for their patients. Oh, yeah. I mean, the results that ChenMed has is unbelievable. They have dramatically reduced their CHF uh, readmissions. At Intermountain, they reduced hospitalizations by 20%. They got rid of a fifth of the hospitalizations for their outpatient primary care population. It's fantastic. So um, just kind of moving us along, do you think we will see the shift of value-based care strengthen? I just think this is a perfect segue into talking about, do we see it strengthening or diminishing? And how do we see referrals being a part of that change? 
So everything in healthcare is slow. So if you think it's going to take five, it might take 50. In fact, so the big healthcare conference is called, you know, healthcare finance, you know, investor conference is called JP Morgan. And they have hospital systems go out, their CEOs present at JP Morgan. And one of the hospital system uh, CEOs that presented said, we are excited to embark on our 50-year value-based care journey. 50 years. That's more than a career. (laughs) Okay. So (laughs) what does that mean? There's no rush. Because hospital systems, frankly, have no financial incentive to move in the direction of value. Like I said, they love fee-for-service. So right. like right. They, they are not going to run, right? So what, so what does that mean? Like why, why is healthcare so slow? Because the vast majority of folks within healthcare, actually, the, the organizations within healthcare actually like the way it is. They actually don't want it to change. Health insurance, company don't, health insurance companies don't want healthcare to change. Hospitals do not want healthcare to change. PBMs do not want healthcare to change. Pharmaceutical companies do not want healthcare to change. So guess what happens when you have the major power players in healthcare that don't want change? You don't get a lot of change. So it is not going to be a tidal wave. It is going to be a very slow trickle. And all of those constituents are going to fight it every step of the way. What do you think will move it? What do you think will move it? Pain. It can be pain from employers. It can be pain from patients. It can be regulatory pain. It can be judicial pain in the form of lawsuits. The only thing that will move is pain. To conclude every episode, we ask one final question. What is one big scary dream for yourself or for the industry? Everybody who's worked in healthcare has seen like beautiful, amazing things happen. So I do not mean to be all doom and gloom. Like those, um, you know, when you have a patient who was either really sick or you like averted, you know, horrible, you know, illness or death or whatever, like we've all seen that. And so it is absolutely possible and doable. And it frankly can be tremendously accentuated, accelerated, and expanded, frankly, when you put the patient at the center and because the majority of clinical decision making is it's driven by the it's driven by the clinician. Okay. It's not driven by the patient, right? The patient's not, ah, you know what? I really need to have an ERCP. Like the patient's not going to say I need an ERCP. Okay. The clinician decides that. Is you get, is in my opinion, this is, this is my opinion. And there are many people that disagree with this is you've got to get the physicians on salary. Listen, WW Mayo in the 1800s was right. The Cleveland Clinic is right. And we need to get physicians on salary so that their clinical judgment is not based upon their remuneration and vice versa. Thank you for listening to the Business of Primary Care podcast. We are honored that you've chosen to be a part of this community. In a world where traditional primary care must adapt, evolve, and change to thrive, we believe community, supportive resources, and education are truly essential. We are committed to finding answers and a better way forward. You can expect us to provide you with the latest news, trends, and best practices so that you can win in the business of primary care. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe to our newsletter at businessofprimarycare.com and follow us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe to get new episodes wherever you like to listen. 
Lastly, if you'd like to connect with Dr. Brecker or Katila Farley, we've linked their LinkedIn profiles in the show notes.